Nobody better bother me now. Love Talk Radio. Here we go. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird. Travel through time and space. So much to learn. So much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge. Get a fresh new start. Day Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Morning, everyone. This is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network. And an MJ after my sister, who I miss, Marsha Joyce. And we have the author of a really unusual book. It's fantastic. After years away, he's visiting Miss Cleo, the woman who found him in a basket and took him in. Harv and Eos are dangerous and think nothing of robbing black churches to get money to pay back the boys at the VFW for a card game that they lost money. Not a good thing. $19 is what they need and seven church robberies and more to get they won. This is a story about a man named Moses, who you're going to love, who will do anything to avenge the injustices done to so many. John Kelman is here, and he's going to take the spotlight. Good morning, and welcome to you from rainy Westchester, which is where I am. Well, good morning, and welcome to uh, welcome from Chicago, which is where I'm from right now. <laughs> well, at least we had we had 90 inches of snow the other day, whatever. So it's okay. So <laughs> this is this is a story that um, Sarah from Amica Press asked me to read, and I'm glad she did because she gets the, really the greatest books. So give our listeners a brief history. Why did Moses come back to live with Miss Cleo? Why not come to Miss Cleo in Virginia? What happened to him? What's his story? Right. So, so, um, so Moses, uh, he, as an infant, he was found next to this creek and uh, in a basket by uh, this older guy uh, who's married to Miss Cleo, and they raised Moses as their own, and they call him Baby Moses. That's the title of the book. They call him Baby Moses just as kind of like a, a nickname. And this is, you know, this is, you know, the beginning, you know, this is close to the, you know, this is about 100 years ago, 80 years ago, something like that. And uh, so he, you know, like most young men at the time, he goes off to World War II, um, ends up in Chicago um, after the war, getting a job, working. And then uh, Miss Cleo gets sick, and uh, he comes back to town to visit her after being gone for you know, quite a while. Um, so mm-hmm. it's the 1950s. He's headed back to back to his hometown to, to visit Miss Cleo. And on the way there, her church gets robbed. And so by the time he gets to town, events are already in motion. Even though he really wasn't, you know, part of the part of the spark that starts the fire, so to speak. Well, I get the feeling that he doesn't like to stay in one place at a time. How come? He likes to move around a lot, even when he's you know, solid or has a job. He still likes to move around a lot. Why does he feel that he has to move? Yeah, I don't know if he, I don't, in my mind, he's not, He. I mean, he's definitely looking for something. I. Yeah. But he, he's looking for something, right? Because as an infant, he uh, he doesn't know who his, his, his mother, his biological mother was. Um, he just has gaps, you know. He's just kind of a, 
I wouldn't call him a lost soul, but he's, you know, he has gaps. But every time he does move, whether it be to Europe for the war or or Chicago after that or back down, um, it's more because uh, he's he's being called somewhere. I don't think he's really out searching for something. I think he's more like being called, you know, to a place. So Miss Cleo gets sick, so he's going to go visit her, you know, something like that. Yeah, I know. You you got to love her though. You got to love her. She's amazing. I have to ask this question. Is this a standalone or are you going to bring him back? Well, I mean, that was a question. I mean, I've been, you know, thinking about that. Um, I, I, my first book was called Monster City, and I imagined that to be like mm-hmm. this whole sprawling epic, and that never happened. You know, I wrote the one book, and it was a more of like a – that, that's much more of a campy kind of a monster mystery type of thing. Um, and I love it, but it just, you know, this one um, – I certainly didn't write it with the intention of it being a series or sequels or anything like that. To me, it was uh, me reacting to the news four years ago. I was reading something on the news, and I forget exactly what it was, but this was my reaction to it. And um, so I never really imagined Moses as being a a serialized protagonist. You know, I never really imagined him to be the kind of character that comes back adventure after adventure. To me, it's more like um, a man who's forced into a situation. He has to react to it. You know, when the Klan, you know, these two guys are robbing black churches. The police aren't really doing yeah. anything about it. It's the 1950s. It's the Deep South. Um, so he kind of takes it upon himself to figure out who robbed these churches. Uh things escalate and you know at some point the the clan is involved and things are getting burnt and people are getting murdered and but that was never his intention you know this was never his intention was never some kind of death wish um vengeance you know uh you know reign of terror it was more like a bunch of money was stolen from you know his people and you know his 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 family his friends his mother's church um private possessions were stolen and he just wanted to get them back and then things you know he's he's trying to do what's right every step of the way but as he's doing what's right as a black man in the 1950s he does things right and every step of the way the right thing doesn't get what the response is supposed to be so he's he's put into more and more desperate situations as the story progresses no i see that what bothers me i grew up in the south bronx that's what made me like i am tough i may be little and i taught for a tough school in the bronx and i never had problems with the kids believe it or not and right i wouldn't have, i wouldn't have traded one minute of it seriously so explain and tell uh, why is it that black people were looked down upon by whites? That bothers me. I don't. You see, I was brought up by my my parent, my father, not so much my mother. Everybody's the same on the outside, and the right. on the on the outside, everybody's same on the inside, but different on the outside, and that's what makes everybody special and unique. That's how I believe. Right. Maybe it's just me. So why is right. it that? And, then, and what did the black people say? Like we're just like everybody else. How come they will look down upon them because of their color? Well, I mean, well, yeah, it's. I mean, here's That's the way sad. I I kind of look at. It. Here, here's a little quick little story from last Christmas that it, this is the way I kind of uh, mm-hmm. visualize the answer to your question. I was sitting in my garage with um, 
my kids, my wife, and my parents and my sister. We're having, you know, a COVID Christmas, which means we're all wearing masks, mm-hmm. 30 degrees out, we're in a garage. Oh, God. My parents and my sister on one side, my fam, you know, my household's on the other. And I'm looking at my dad, who's 83, and I'm looking at my daughter, who's 10. And, you know, if, if my dad died at that moment... My my daughter, who's 10, would remember him. You know, we remember people from when we're like five or yeah. six years old. And I got to thinking about how, okay, so when my dad was, you know, roughly that age, which would have been around 1942, 1943, if he had met someone the age that he is now, he would have been meeting someone who was alive before the Civil War, right? Mm-hmm. So everyone alive today who's over the age of like 83, 84 They've all met people who are alive before the Civil War. They've all met people who were possibly former slaves, former slave owners, lived on plantations. It doesn't matter. I mean, I'm just saying, like, we, you know, the idea of the Civil War being some kind of ancient piece of history like Stonehenge or something, it's not the case. If you look at it from this point of view, it was two people ago. You know, I, I know that it was generations, but it was also two people. It was my dad and then yeah. someone he met. So um, to think that the Civil War and slavery was some kind of a, a thing that happened back before Columbus sailed is, is not accurate. And the way I kind of see it is, um, you know, I love monster movies and giant monster movies and King Kong movies. And there's always a scene in these movies where they're out in the jungle and then they trip and someone trips and falls in a hole. Mm-hmm. And... Someone pulls them out, and the camera pans up, and you notice it's not a hole, it's a footprint. But the person in the hole can't tell it's a footprint. To them, it's just a hole. And it's not until you you pan back and you see the shape of it with the claws that you can see it's actually a giant footprint. So to me, that's that's what slavery is to America. It's a huge footprint that we're all in, and it's so vast and so huge and so deep that we can't even see the edges and we can't make out what the foot, the shape of the print, so to speak. But we're all living in it. We're all existing in it. So this is all, it's ripples from a giant meteor that hit the ocean, and it's still rippling out. And, you know, if you go back to the 1950s, you know, that's, I mean, it was, you know, it was one person ago. The, the You know, the, the slavery was one person ago in the 1950s. So I guess that's my response to it. No, that's that's interesting. So we have Enos and Harv. I didn't like them at all. Tell us about how come they actually felt nineteen dollars and they felt justified to rob black churches. Why? I mean, that's horrible. There's no excuse for that. Well, no, there's no excuse for it. There's no excuse for a lot of terrible human behavior, but we see it every day. I mean, you know, you walk outside and you go to the store and you look out your window and you watch the news and. There's, we, you know, all of us, me included, we all do terrible things. Um, and s- the magnitude is the issue. You know what I mean? Like we all do slightly bad things. We all do, you know, if you magnify it, these t- tiny little things we do are, are terrible. But, you know, we all kind of justify it in our own heads. And we, you know, when we're speeding, we say, well, yeah, but I'm driving safe. It's okay if I speed. I'm driving safe. And I'm not saying it's a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying... We all have the capacity to justify what we're doing because mm-hmm. what we're doing is a little we, – we say to ourselves it's a little bit different than what everybody else is doing. Like everybody else, okay, that's bad. But what I'm doing, well, it's not great maybe, 
but I, at least I got a reason for it. So, you know, we're all pretty adept. I shouldn't say everybody. At least I am. I'm pretty adept at justifying all the terrible things I do, you know, day in, day out. And I'm sure a lot of people are too, you know. But I agree. They are, they're despicable people, and they're not um, – There's, yeah, they're despicable. Absolutely, Harv and Enos are despicable. Well, my mother, you didn't live with my mother. There was no such thing as getting in trouble ever, ever. She just gave you the look, and you knew that did, you didn't even try it because you would lose, which is right, probably why right, right, right. I never got in trouble ever. Seriously. Right. <laughs> I get in trouble right. now because cause I speak out, but she, I didn't get in trouble right. back then. I knew better. And right, she never right. raised her voice. She never hit. She never screamed. She just gave you the look, and you go, oh, my God. So. Right. Moses, I like this character. What exactly yeah. they stole? Okay, and Moses was going to make them pay for it. So how come he went and got the job that he had before? How come they took him back? How come this M took him back? Well, I mean, I don't know if she took him back. I like really, him. you know, she gave him a job because yeah. he was he was seemed to be a hard worker. But the only reason he went to work there is well, so what happens is you know these two guys, Enos and Harv, they rob the church, right? And the only clues they have is because they both wear masks, and the only clue they have is that one of them is missing a finger, and they're both white, uh, and 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 also mm. one has a limp, right? So those are your three clues: two white guys, one has a limp, and one has a missing finger, and that's all you know about them. Oh, and then he figures out well they probably work at the uh, the grain and feed down the road. So Moses gets a job cleaning dishes at the uh, at the diner down the road from the grain and feed, and he figures if I just stay here. For long enough, I'm going to see two white guys. One's missing a finger. One has a limp, and that's probably the two guys. And it takes them like a year to, mm-hmm. you know, a year of cleaning dishes to just wait it out and and find out what that hap- you know, what happens there. And the scene that that leads into in the cellar is really the first scene that I envisioned when I wrote the book. Um, what I wanted to write when I wrote the book was uh, it was all about the style. I wanted to write one of those sparse, terse, southern noir type, you know, things. And every single plot it came up with was absolutely terrible. It was all about a drug deal gone wrong, or it's all about a bank robbery. It was just terrible. And then I I was watching the news, and I forget the exact story, but um, I was watching some story on the news, and uh, it just occurred to me that what if my protagonist was a black guy instead of a white guy? And then the whole story within the next half hour just unfolded you know, in my head um, with no effort whatsoever. And the first scene that popped into my head was um, two white guys, two Klansmen tied to chairs in a cellar and is sitting across from them in a chair is a, is a huge black man with a Klan hood and a pipe wrench on his, on his lap. Um, and I thought, okay, now there is a scene I would like to see. You know, I, would, I would like to see that scene. So how do we get there and what happens afterwards? And that was really how I wrote the book. Is why are we sitting in the cellar with these three men and what happens mm-hmm. afterwards? That's what I really liked about it, because if it was a white guy, I probably would have lost interest. It made more sense to me to be a black guy. And that's why I really, I do admire, I really liked him. And his kind of justice yeah. may not be the right way, but he sure got it done. And every time he got someone, I sort of applauded, but I probably shouldn't have, but I did. Because I, I, I grew well, to admire him. 
Yeah, I mean, I think he is admirable. And uh, for my, yeah. I had a couple of rules right in this book. One of the rules was Moses can't make a mistake until he makes a mistake. So up yeah. until that scene in the cellar where he makes a mistake, Moses, yeah. he does everything the way he's supposed to. You know, society says or whatever, the rules, the law says do this, this, and this, and that's what he does. He gets to the cellar, and for the first time in the whole book, his emotions get a, get a hold of him. Um, and he does something, and it goes sideways, and someone dies. And then from that point on, it's all reactionary, right? Up until the moment before, it was he's he's actively looking, and so after that, he's reacting. Um, yeah, but he's he's an admirable person. He's a you know he's a good guy, and then he does a terrible thing, and but you can kind of see how. He was pushed to it, so to speak, you know? You sort of say, good for you, a couple of times. So, yeah, I mean, Creole, yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, everybody justifies when they do something wrong. And, you know, after teaching for 36 million years, um, the kids, my, my kids, my students wouldn't even think to justify when they did the wrong thing. They go, oh, well, what can I, they would admit, like, we didn't mean, I didn't mean to do it. What, what's my punishment? And usually, right. if they admitted to doing it and it wasn't anything awful, I would just say, well, let's see, we're going to give you a, a pass on this one. Do it again, and you don't want to know what punish lesson I'm going to come up with. Well, how many gym periods you're going to keep me company? I never had right. to raise my right. voice. It was, and I'm little. I'm only five feet tall, and I weigh 110 pounds. Uh, what, uh, don't mess with the girl. But, but I love them. Miss um, Cleo passes, so what does he do to honor her memory? That was so sad. I didn't want her to die. Yeah, um well to honor her memory he he uh he carves her he himself carves her tombstone, her her headstone. Yeah. He uh he, earlier in the book he's having a conversation with uh, a deputy and you know we're hoping that this conversation goes well. We're hoping the deputy sees Moses' side of things. Um he doesn't, but you know we were hoping at the time and uh, Moses is sitting on this big flat rock in the bottom of a hill next to a creek. So uh, as Miss Cleo, um, she dies, and so he goes back, and he, you know, it's like a whole chapter or two of him just dragging this mm-hmm. rock up the hill, um, taking it back to the church, you know, chiseling out her name, burying it, you know, halfway in the upright. Um, yeah. Now, um, I have a kind of an interesting story about Miss mm-hmm. Cleo that kind of somehow intercepted with my own life somehow. Um so, you know, Miss Cleo finds him next to the creek, so she's not his biological mother. And she says to him in the book, uh, as before she dies, like, look, if you want to know the identity of your biological mom, you've got to go talk to this guy in the swamp. You've got to go find Brujo and talk to him in the swamp. He, mm-hmm. knows this, he knows your story. So later on, Miss Cleo dies, and Moses decides, okay, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to find, you know, my origin. And he, he goes out, and it takes him a while, and he finds Brujo. And I'm writing this chapter on a Wednesday morning before work. And uh, I'm writing it down, and they're talking. And uh, he says, okay, here's your mom's name. Here's your, here's your biological mother's name. Here's the one who gave birth to you. But I got bad news. She's she's already dead. So I write that yeah. chapter Wednesday morning. Now here's here's the coincidence. A couple months before, my wife gave me a DNA test because I was adopted as a kid. It wasn't anything nearly as dramatic as Moses. It was just mm-hmm. that you know I had a, 
My mother was 18. She didn't keep me, put me up for adoption. Uh, my parents adopted me. It's a happy story. But I was always kind of curious who she was. So my wife gave me a, uh, a DNA test. Well, it didn't come up with any hits. The only hit was like a, a woman who's like my third cousin or something. But I get an email from that woman uh, in, in that, that Wednesday during the day saying, hey, uh, I'm really into genealogy. I've been studying, you know, our family for a long time, and I know who your, I know who your your biological mother was. Would you like to talk tonight? So uh, we have a phone conversation, and so in that morning, I write this chapter about how Moses goes and finds out his biological mother's name and that she's dead. And later that evening, I have a conversation with a woman, and she says, "Well, your biological mother's name was Peggy, and I've got bad news. She's dead." So the exact same thing happened to me and Moses. Oh, wow. And here's, the, here's, the, here's the capper on it, is that when I was creating the, the towns and the rivers and stuff in the book, I was randomly opening up the map and just pulling names from different maps of the south because I wanted it to be kind of nebulous where it was. So, like, the plants are from mm-hmm. Mississippi and the trees are from and the, – but the towns are from Arkansas. So this takes place in an imaginary town named Raymond, which I got the name Raymond from a map of Arkansas. Turns out my biological mother, Peggy, she uh, lived in um, Little Rock, Arkansas, which is about 20 minutes from Raymond, where I got this name from. So fast forward two weeks, I'm driving from Chicago down to Arkansas to meet my two half-sisters, where my you know biological mother lives. So it was this really, you know, it was this weird that's mirror that happened after I wrote the story. Yeah. That's what you but see that you got something out of it, so that's even better. So your wife actually did you a big favor. So you've got your two half sisters now. That that is amazing. Yeah. So yeah. We have about ten minutes, and um, so the other character that I didn't I didn't quite get. I got him, but tell us about Sheriff Purdy. Now he didn't really care about the robberies and the thefts, but my favorite character was Deputy Boone. And he was yeah. afraid he was going to lose his job. How come the sheriff yeah. sort of sided with the bad guys? He didn't do anything about it. And I was kind of like, are you well, serious? Well, because he's racist. Because he's racist. I mean, like, you know, he's yeah. – because it happened in a black church, and it was white I guys know. doing the crime, it's, yeah, I know. and it's the 1950s, and, you know, what are you going to – you know, what's he going to do? Um, the point of Boone, though, is – you know, the whole book, you're kind of hope. at least my intention was, that you're kind of hoping that Boone does the right thing, right? That Boone comes yeah. through with him. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the trope of the white savior is, uh, is I, was, I was actively trying to, um, I was purposely setting it up where like, okay, here's, here's going to be the white guy that saves the day. Here's going to be the white woman that saves the day. You know, Miss Emily. Okay, she's going to help out Moses. Okay, here's Boone. He's going to help out Moses. Okay, here's the bus driver. He's going to help out Moses. And each, as you're going through this story, each of these white characters fails Moses because I think the reality of it is is that, you know, this whole white savior trope is something of a fallacy. It's not that white people don't help out the black community. It's that the black community can't and doesn't and shouldn't depend on you know, the white community to bail them out every step of the way. I don't think they do, and I don't, I don't think either side, I don't think, it just doesn't, it's just not realistic. It doesn't happen. So that was no. my intention with Boone, was you're, you're, you're sitting there going, okay, Boone's not a bad guy. Boone's going to come around. And then when Boone has an opportunity to do the right thing, he fails. 
It's that crisis of character where he's at the crossroads, so to speak, and he can do A or he can do B, and he does B, and he lets everyone down, including himself. That's sad. So let's see. I have a few more questions before the time is up. Sure. Tell us about Miss Agnes and the connection to the rhyme of the ancient mariner, which I love that poem. Yeah. Uh, I love the poem, too. Um, I read it back in uh, high school for the first time, and I just turned 50, so that was a while ago. And, um, you know, I read it in college, and I memorized a lot of it, and it's always been around in my head. And this notion of a guy on a ship who has sinned, and he's paying for his sins, and he's surrounded by the consequences of his sins. Uh, It's always resonated with me, and it's always felt ripe for... Um, you know, an adaptation of some kind. And not that this book is an adaptation of the Ancient Mariner in any way, but um, it was in my head that this idea that we, um, you know, we fail each other and we fail ourselves and we need to face these consequences. And it's not good enough to say I'm sorry. Uh, Saying you're sorry doesn't fix anything, you know, and Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, you know, he says he's sorry, but he's still cursed. It's not until he actually has compassion for these these creatures of the, these gross, grotesque, you know, slimy sea monsters that are swimming around the, this, this sailing vessel, and he finally prays for them. He finally has compassion for them, and that's what alleviates his torture, is having compassion for others. So, that that theme or that moral has always kind of rung true with me, that saying mm-hmm. you're sorry really isn't good enough. Having compassion for one another, if they accept it or not, is almost irrelevant. What makes you a good person is having compassion for others. Well, then I must be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, some, sometimes my husband tells me I'm too compassionate. But you know what? With what's going on in the world today... The hardest thing, I think, at times is for people to forgive people. And that's why I better better not forget before I go off the air in five minutes. Um, Monday, Pastor Michael Jones will be here with the seven habits of highly effective Christians. He teaches me something every single time. And they're interesting. And it's forgiveness and money and friendships. And it's an interesting book. I've read it seven times. And each time we interview him, we talk about something else. On Wednesday, right. Lee Matthew Goldberg will be here. I love him. Ocean City, Orange City, um, yeah, scary. And on the 29th, the author of The Madness of Q. And what better way to end March than with Philip Margolin, A Matter of Life and Death. He's one of my favorite people. He's also the number one defense criminal lawyer in the world, and he's a great New York Times author. And that's just March. You never know what's going to happen in April. So how would you describe, before we end, how would you describe Moses... And he enacted his own brand of justice. Personally, I don't think I think he deserves to get away with it. But there are people that might say that he doesn't. Does he deserve to go right. free for what he did? I like him. I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> I, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, it's it ends violently. The book. I'm not. You know, it doesn't give anything yeah, away no. by saying the book ends violently. Um, does he deserve to get away? I'm not. Um, I mean, my gut wants to say, yeah, of course he deserves to get away because he only yeah, did things to people who deserve it. Um, 
Uh, boy, that's a good question. Does he deserve to get away? Well, that's um, up to the reader to decide, maybe. Everybody has their own I, I'll opinion. I'll tell you this. I, I had a really hard time with the ending. Um, at, yeah, I can imagine. You know, I, I, you know there's, a, there's only a couple ways it could have ended. And yeah. the story kept telling me that he's supposed to not get away with it. You know, the story is, tells me that he's supposed to pay for his crime. Uh, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Um, I think it's left somewhat nebulous. I'm not sure if we really know if he if he pays for his crimes or not. Um, and there's more than one way to pay for your crimes. You know, you can get arrested and put in jail. And also, yeah. for some people, uh, you have to live with it. So um, I don't know if he gets away with it or not. That's a good question. That's my problem. I ask, yeah, well, that's what bothered me. But I'm not going to tell anybody how it ends. As a matter of fact, it's funny. My husband doesn't read any of the books that I ever review. And the last two that I did was Infinite by Brian Freeman, which is really scary, and um, The Mirror, Mirrored Perilous, and he just asked me for yours, which is in shock. <laughs> That's great. He, doesn't read, he, re, he does not read anything I, I review. Nobody does, just me. Well, and I hope read, he, if he reads it, I hope he likes I it. I read thousands of books. I mean, too many. Yeah. Probably because I've been, my mother made me read 10 a week besides school. So seriously. Um, so if you were going to write a sequel, we have about two minutes left. Where, do you, where yeah. would you see Moses next? And Oh, I can, t- I can tell you what the sequel would be. Uh, Moses wouldn't be in it. Um, I, I've already sketched it out. I just don't know if I'm going to write it. It's, uh, see, now, it's I 19- now I feel better. It's 1973. Um, Maggie, who is the woman at the chicken shack that, that Moses oh, I was love friends her. with. Yeah. Uh, her son comes back from Vietnam. Uh, Boone is the sheriff, and her son Gertie gets a job as a deputy with Boone. That's 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 the, that's the sequel. Uh, and if you remember, oh. you know, and Boone did a terrible thing to. Uh, yeah, I like Boone though. Boone did like a terrible him, thing to Gertie's father, Unc. So that's not Unc. Uh, yeah, Unc. So um, we know. You know, that's that's the story. Is that the next generation told? You know, twenty five years later. Well, then you have to tell it because I have to read it. And before we end, where do we find out more about you and your work? And is this going to be the next one, or is there something before that that's coming? No, that's it. I mean, I'm just, you know, but look, I'm I'm slow at this. My first book took me 10 years to write. My second one took me four years to write. I don't pump these things out very often. Um, they're just hard for I, I'm not. It's just the process is really hard for me. But, uh, yeah, the book's available through Amica Press. The book's available. Mo, Baby Moses is available through um, uh Amazon, but you got to be careful because when you type in Baby Moses, it's my book, which is about, you know, murder in the Deep South in the 1950s, and then about five or six kid books about Moses being found on a riverbank. So mine is the one with my name on it, John Cowlin, Baby Moses at Amazon.com. And it's the one with my five stars that I put on a long time ago. Yes. You know, I've been reading, <laughs> I've been reading since I'm three. My mother made me read ten books a week. I'm not kidding. Besides language lessons, piano lessons, violin lessons, and the thing I hated the most, dancing lessons. That was like worse than root canal, dancing lessons. And um, I really, I didn't like it. My sister did. And I took notes. So if you ever look at your book, I don't know how my husband's going to read it. I underline, circle, cross out, um, etch, whatever, and, and, and write questions as, as I go along. 
And that's probably why when I read you, after I read your book, I had it memorized from cover to cover. It's scary. (laughs) But I'm serious. It's like, wow. And yeah, I have it. I have it here. I never, ever, ever give the books away until after he reads them or somebody else reads them. That says, "Can right. I have the book?" And then a lot of times, I just tell him go to Amazon. But I want to. I want to right. thank you very much. We went over the half an hour. It's about twenty-five minutes, a little bit more than a half an hour. But I appreciate the fact that you came on. Um, you know, Mika Press is the second author that they gave me. Um, they don't give. They don't. I guess they only give me the ones that they feel uh, I'm going to want to review, <laughs> and that's which is great. So thank you so much. Um, before I end the show, this is what I say at the end of every show. Before when you go out, just this one small ask: please be safe and wear a mask. And for those of you that this is just my opinion, I have not had the vaccine, despite any side effects, it's worth it. Seriously, worth it. Despite, <laughs> despite, despite yeah. the side effects. Yeah, they're pretty hard. I'm getting shot number two tomorrow. Yep, I agree. Which one are you getting, Johnson & Johnson? Moderna. Shot number two is that's tomorrow. What, that's what I, I got, Moderna. I got Moderna. Yeah. It's probably the hey, most powerful. Hey, thanks for having me. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. Do you do, I, I started to ask you, but do you do panel shows? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Well. Yeah. Okay, great. I will let you know. Thank you so much. Everybody have a beautiful day, and bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you.